0: Alright, time for everyone's game. Me giving an unpopular statement on a Star Trek show. When I first saw this episode back in the day, I didn't like this episode, like, at all, really. In fact, it irritated me to the point where when it would come up on reruns, I usually wouldn't watch it. It certainly wasn't part of the VHS cycle. It wasn't until years later that I actually rewatched it that I figured out the specifics of why I didn't like the episode, of which there are three points. Don't worry, I plan on discussing all three. As well as, you know, started to actually appreciate the episode for being a good episode. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, why is that a controversial topic? Well, I looked up five separate ranking sites for TNG episodes right before doing this. All five of them had Darmok way up towards the top, usually at like number six or five on the list there, as far as best episodes of TNG. And Cinema Fang, I'm pretty sure that's the name of the, the magazine. I don't actually have that magazine anymore. Uh, had done a poll among Star Trek fans where they could write in and say, this is my favorite Star Trek TNG episode right around season seven, when, was, when season seven was wrapping up. And Darmok also became one of the top ones there. And usually when I bring this episode up, it's it's with praise. People are like, oh my God, yes, Darmok is the greatest. So I felt kind of weird for not liking it. Now, Lord knows there are plenty of times where I like something that other people don't, and where I don't like something that other people do. That's just life, and I've slowly become to accept that when it happens. But it usually tends to be the exception, especially when it comes to geek culture. So I decided, as I mentioned, to give this episode a review, and I was like, oh. So going back through this time, I have to admit, since this is actually technically the second time I've had to reanalyze this episode, I was very curious exactly how this one was going to turn out for me. Now, before I talk about the episode proper, I want to mention a couple of things. This episode was a high-concept episode, you know, the communication thing, which I'll talk about first. But before I get into that, this episode had been on the back burner for years, almost two years, actually, while uh, it, someone in staff, Rick Berman, excuse me, oh, had something really awful and horrible stuck in my chest there, had it just said he hated it. He absolutely despised the concept and he didn't want anything to do with it. Go ahead and insert your own Rick Berman joke here. They're all good. But either way, they just kept pushing this and pushing this, and finally they're like, all right, fine. Berman went ahead and gave the green light, because in Season 5, well, I kind of referenced this earlier, but when Season 5 happened, Braga and Taylor, uh, Brandon Braga and Jerry Taylor, both were basically scrambling for scripts. They They needed 26 scripts for the season, and they didn't have them when the season started, so they were a lot more open to accepting scripts they otherwise wouldn't. Which might be another reason why seasons, season five tends to have such quality scripts in it, but I digress. Regardless, uh, Pillar handed this off to Joe Manoski, who I've given plenty of praise before, even though I also despise some aspects of his writing. But where he is good as pushing ideas and pu- uh, stretching out the envelope, trying to do things that other people generally won't do when it comes to writing, especially on Star Trek. And I think that he was a good pick for this kind of a script. We also got Paul Winfield to play Dath on, And Paul Winfield is awesome. And in addition to this, we have uh, Wilrich Colby and David Rush. Or, oh, shoot, is it David Rush? I'm sorry, let me look that up really quick. I don't want to say the wrong name here. Marvin, sorry, Marvin Rush, my apologies, who was the director of photography, and Colby, who was the director. Both of them did some excellent work with regards to this episode. In fact, one of my favorite bits is the scene at the campfire. That's on a soundstage. Which is funny, because they actually did do a, a location suit, at Bronson cannon, in order to film some of this. But that bit was done on a soundstage with very careful and specific usage of lighting and timing and, and you know preset macros and all that sort of thing. So it was really good stuff. But I've been dancing right enough. We, ha- we can- basically cannot talk about this, this episode without talking about the concept. <sighs> So let's talk about the concept in a vacuum first. The universal translator is working, like working just fine, actually. The problem is it doesn't have enough context to properly divest what they're saying into something that we would understand. But you'll notice they are speaking, for all intents and purposes, English. The universal translator is succeeding at its job it's just that it is only succeeding in translating the literal translation it's kind of the Google translate problem you can dump Chinese or Korean or Hebrew or Russian or whatever into you know that and it'll come out as English it might not be particularly understandable but it will come out as English right so I find that concept fascinating if anything I wish this had happened more uh, usually, when the universal translator fails in Star Trek, what we hear is because they're all Murlocs or whatever. Instead, here we hear, you know, something completely logically translatable. It's just completely ununderstandable. I like that. I really enjoy that concept. I just want to start there because it's a fascinating idea, and it removes from the episode and from the tool of the uh, of the the crew the single most fundamental tool that exists for any sentient sapient being indeed any intelligent creature communication here's the catch (laughs) before I go any further even right at the beginning you can kinda get a hint of what they're talking about on the other bridge because of their body language and their tone. see I say the word communication very specifically but communication is not just verbal if If I were to flatten out my tone and just say every single word with a total lack of inflection and no 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 physical movements whatsoever, this would be the equivalent of verbal communication and nothing else, right? But that's not how we communicate. Now, that's not even how beasts communicate. We have other things we do. We have other ways in which we can get across the ideas we want to, Uh, with our tone, with our pacing, with our word choice with our body language, with our facial language, with, with everything we do, we communicate. The study of this has been a, a topic of great interest to me since I was a kid. And indeed, as I've told several stories before, I've actually had multiple instances in my life where I've, I've had to communicate with someone who either didn't speak at all, didn't speak or hear at all, who was both dumb and deaf, or someone who was of a completely different language to me who knew no, not a lick of English, and I didn't know a lick of whatever they spoke, right? This is a truly fascinating topic to me, because it has to do with social interaction, which is another fascinating topic to me and one of my most interesting subjects. So you can imagine why this episode kind of irritated me, even as a kid. Because they treat it as if the only possible method of communication is verbal. It is thus frustrating where a huge chunk of the episode is spent completely ignoring every attempt at communication other than the verbal. Even the captain could have said, uh, I forget all the phrases now, but, you know, blah, 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 his arm's wide, and then giving him the knife. Or, you know, no, 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 uh, his arm's closed, no, his arm's wide, Um, you know, give it to you, you know. There are ways to do motions and explanations. As I said, I've done this before in real life. There are ways to communicate intent without relying just on what's coming out of your mouth there's a good scene where there's actually very very little dialogue between uh dathon and picard and the two of them are just there and it's the first scene of communication between the two where he successfully communicates his arms wide being the things that actually this means i am giving this to you or i'm offering this to you right this is something that you should accept make sense because it can actually apply both ways both i am accepting and i am giving so, Picard finally comprehends this as he takes the the torch. It's like, ah, thank you, thank you. It's a good scene, but if anything, I wish they did more with it. I would have absolutely loved it if we had Paul Winfield, who's an excellent actor, and Patrick Stewart, who's an excellent actor, do several minutes of a scene where there is no dialogue. Or if there is, there's only uh, representative dialogue. in trying to communicate solely based on movement action and words it's obvious there's no real hostility here this is not a dangerous environment other than the beast that is established very early on he is not a threat so that's not a. St- the, in other words the most obvious and adamant hurdle between communicating with a totally alien creature whether it be from another race or of your own is already been solved it's not a threat because that's always point one when it comes to uh, contacting the unknown is this a threat or not so it's not a threat Remove that obstacle. Now we can establish trying to interact and coordinate. Picard eventually. Now, see, you're probably saying, Laura, you're being too harsh on this episode. Picard and and Dathon do eventually start doing. Nonverbal communication using symbolism, Picard has the rock and he draws on the sand, and they use a lot of body language and tonality to start explaining other. it 's the first scene they really start actually communicating it 's a great scene it 's an awesome scene it happens thirty two minutes into the episode and that 's what bothers me. It takes so long for this tra- for Picard, one of the most amazing diplomats in the history of ever to pick up on the idea of communicating with something other than words. It's almost embarrassing when both he and Riker, and as I mentioned before, Riker has already established his ability to talk through diplomatic situations in previous episodes, but both he and Riker are just, here's what we should do, let's just have a normal communication with you without any attempt at anything. Now, before I move any further, I do have to mention the idea of the alien language which is the way that it is to describe to us is that they speak entirely in metaphor this is a fascinating concept I'll admit it's a functionally alien one I I wanted to use a specific example here see here's the thing we in real life use figures of speech so overwhelmingly common that if someone understood English but out without context a lot of what we say on an everyday basis would be virtually gibberish. Now, I want to apply this specifically to a military scenario, because that's a military ship with weapons and doom, and of course it can match the Enterprise, because of course it can. I'll get to that later. But anyways, it's a military ship, right? So he has to be able to give orders like, go forward, or attack, or warp to this system, right? How do you give such orders with metaphor? Well... That's if we presume we could slot in a specific pronoun in place of another one when it comes to metaphorical speech. Let me give you two examples right off the top of my head of military orders that have been said that are figures of speech. Don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. Now, you could argue that that was meant to be a literal thing, but that has been used since then as a metaphorical statement. In fact, that's been used in fiction as well for a state where you are fighting a ship or a tank, and literally could not see the whites of their eyes. Because it wasn't intended to be made literal. It's me. What it means is wait until they're close, then fire. That's what the intent is of that. That's the point of a figure of speech. See, literal communication is one of those strange things, especially when it comes to English. English has an absolutely inordinately gargantuan vocabulary specifically because it borrows from so many other languages, but also because English, and this is the one good thing about English, English has a word for basically everything. Every layer of nuance and subtlety with regards to a specific thing has a different word for explaining that. Now. Whether that's a good or a bad thing is up to other people. I only bring that up because I myself have been studying English extensively over the last couple of years in my efforts to design my own language, and I I have uncovered how surprisingly interesting English is. I've always just assumed English is a dumb language, but actually studying it, I I no longer agree with that opinion. However, English is still a very difficult language because, again, most people don't use English literally. Or if someone was to say, for example, I want you to... uh, See, of course, now I can't think of any examples. There are so many metaphors. I've actually already used metaphors in this very rumination. A lot of what we say is not literal, is what I'm trying to say. I I actually tried to look up a list of examples. All the lists I found were crap. (laughs) It was all metaphors that I haven't heard used in, like, 15 years. It's like, come on, guys, there's got to be a modern list, right? Uh, But I bet if you sat and thought about it, please forgive me for not having a proper list ready. If you sat and thought about it, you could think of dozens, if not hundreds, of metaphors that you have used probably today, if not within the last day or two. Because that's how we function as a society. That's how we have functioned going back, at the very least, to the B.C. era. One of the things I've always found most fascinating about studying history is studying the figures of speech of older cultures. You know, the the ten pieces of silver thing is probably one of my favorites right off the top of my head. Anyways, I bring all this up because the idea of a language that that basically shifts the balance to almost totally beyond the metaphor thing does make a degree of sense. Uh, Tavon, his 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 sails unfurled. Romulus, you know, <laughs> something like that could be a simple command to take us. Sales unfurled, which means to go as full speed as possible, maximum warp to Romulus, for example, something like that. Now, this doesn't apply linearly to all situations. In fact, to be completely blunt, based on my own recent studies on language that I just referenced, I don't think this could work if it was a completely verbal language. But it isn't. Even ignoring things that we don't know about, you know, any kind of additional organ, or or maybe there's olfactory aspects to it, or maybe there's a bit of psychic side of it. There are there are things that we cannot know and are not mentioned in the episode that might be a part of their language. But what we do know as a part of a language, which is demonstrated, is tone and body language. In fact, body language is a huge aspect and how they react. One of my favorite parts is in as they're talking. As Picard is talking to them, in the background, when they realize he's saying that Dathon is dead, they pull out their knife, hold it here, and then do this thing. There's a lot of gesturing, almost a ritualistic gesturing, in the way they communicate. Another nice stunt touch of this is when the captain is seating down, he takes off bits of his uniform and lays them in a very specific order around his, his camp, Now, my first thought was that was a literal thing, something that was designed to help keep up a barrier or whatever of the beast. And yet, as we see, it appears to have no practical use. It was a ritualistic use. It was something that he was doing as some kind of method of being or communicating, right? Now, I know what you're saying, communicating to whom? Well, that's my point. If it is so normal for them to do as their method of communicating, they would probably do so without really meaning to. This is also interesting enough. They show us this uh, book, this, uh, this journal or whatever that he's reading through, or maybe it's not a journal. Maybe it's actually a novel, or maybe it's something. We have no idea. It could be an art book for all we know, but that also implies that they have a significant uh, written component to their language as well, one way or the other, whether it's purely visual or if it's a literal, uh, you know, literary narrative, we don't actually know. But my point being, To me, I find that it is within the realm of reason that these people are capable of functioning at a societal level, effectively using metaphor as 90% of their communication. I do. And I know that's kind of a weird comment to make, but that is an opinion I only have now. I have actually never had that opinion before only now after having studied both English and Greek and Japanese are the three languages I've been looking into as well as studying human communication and psychology and the nature of social interactions for the better part of my life have I finally reached this point where I could say yeah I could see that now it might not be the most efficient method it might not be the most capable for example if they have to do some very specific maneuver in the middle of a battle they might not be able to communicate that properly and they might fail at that you know (laughs) Shaka when the walls fell right but that doesn't mean they can't function at all. It doesn't mean they are, in, they are incapable of designing or producing or coding. Now, this is, of course, just my opinion. And you'll notice I haven't even started talking about the episode yet because I can't. I have to establish this point because this is the premise, the, the method of communication being fundamentally sufficiently different that it cannot be conveyed through literal translation. And I do admittedly find this concept fascinating. I even like the metaphors that they use. Um, for example, Troy uses the example, uh, what was it? Oh, God, what's her frickin' name? Juliet. Juliet under the moonlight. Well, what does that mean exactly? I know that sounds like a strange thing, but as I mentioned earlier with the uh, Timba, his arms wide thing, that can mean both giving and receiving based on context, Right. Juliet under the moonlight could then also mean multiple things based on context. And you can kind of see the idea of how this metaphor layer could be taken to basically as another layer. Let me, let me use, let me use another example. Let me use an example. If I say, Oh, excuse me. Well, that means that I am apologizing for you, for having gotten in your way in some manner and I'm, I'm trying to make recompense for it verbally. If I say, Excuse me. Well, that's kind of insulted, like you've done something that I just don't approve of, and I'm calling attention to that. If I say, excuse me, that means I'm being rude and I don't give a crap about you, and I'm I'm making sure that you know that I don't give a crap about you. If I say, excuse me, with kind of like a comedic tone in my voice, well then, you get my point, don't you? The words excuse me are my favorite to use as this example. I know I've used them before because they can mean so many different things based on context and tone. Thus, we could see how the metaphors could be used in a similar manner because, again, excuse me isn't actually quite of a literal sentence in its own right. In fact, if you take it as a literal statement, what it means is effectively a command and that may or may not apply literally depending on the circumstances, right? So Juliet under the moonlight could mean, uh, God, it could mean a lot of different things. I actually don't like that example, if I'm being completely honest. But, you know, under circumstances, it could be taken to mean multiple things. Um, childlike love, uh, foolish lust. It could mean uh, a woman in waiting for example, or or even a person. Let's let's remove gender from this. It could mean a person in waiting for their love. You know, ah, Juliet under the moonlight. You know, waiting patiently. So, for example, let's say I'm sitting there and I got some roses and I'm waiting for my date and someone walks up and says, hey, and I say, hey, Juliet under the moonlight. And they're like, ah, yeah. You could see how this metaphor can then take multiple different meanings based on context. Now, if I'm being 100% honest, the episode doesn't do enough to establish that. I don't really blame the episode because that would be a task. It would be very difficult from a writer's perspective to sit down and try to demonstrate multiple metaphors repeatedly in different contexts. The only one they really do is temba his arms wide. Otherwise, most of the metaphors apply pretty much universally. Uh, Shaka when the walls fell being a statement for failure or, or, or mistake or otherwise something going wrong. Um, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, meaning two people unifying against a common foe. Um, Darmok on the ocean, him being alone, Jalad on the ocean, him being alone. Darmok and Jalad on the ocean, them leaving as friends, you know, having now reached a unified purpose, etc., etc. Most of these apply in only one manner. I'm not going to hold that against the episode, though. Not when I already have other things to hold against the episode, which I suppose I should bring up the next thing that bothers me about this episode, just really quick. See, the next thing that bothers me about this episode is, uh, I mentioned three things. The first is the lack of, of understanding of communication up until the 32-minute mark. The second thing is technobabble. Let's go ahead and just discuss this for a moment. I know this is a weird place to discuss this, but I've been kind of watching for what I feel is the best time to discuss this, and this is my opinion of what it is. I have actually been pointing out in previous episodes, notably back in Season 2 and Season 3, at a time when technical statements were being made, but were definitively not technobabble. In fact, most of their statements made linear, logical sense in the way they were saying it. And most of it was something that even someone who has a relative layman's understanding could still comprehend what was going on. In this episode, there's an extended scene between Ashley Judd's character, I can't remember her name, we'll talk about her when we get to the game, and Jordy, where they basically just toss technical babble at each other. Now, some of it is literal, and some of it obviously is not. And that's my point. It's an extended scene that basically serves to pad out the episode where someone wrote the word tech into the script. I've actually looked into this before, and I've never been able to find a specific statement on this. See... This, I know I've talked about this before, so please forgive me, but this is my problem with technobabble. Technobabble, real technobabble, what I define as technobabble, is when a writer wrote the word tech into the script, and that's it. It could be replaced with anything else within reason, and it would have no impact on anything. So I need to to, bounce the main particle beam off the main deflector dish, you know, that whole thing, right? It doesn't have any meaning or purpose. In other words, the writer didn't think about it. They didn't think about the technology involved, even at the most basic level. They just thought, uh, we, okay, we need to make this shield work so tech. And that's all. Now, in my opinion, that is not good writing. That's just my opinion. But I hold that opinion very firmly. You can eject that from the script, and the only thing that would be lost is time. I also have to admit, I tend to be against what I usually refer to as lazy writing. And in this case, I do believe this applies. Rather than sitting down and thinking of a way that this could apply, of actually consulting the tech advisor, which they have on Star Trek TNG at this point in time, or you know someone else, they could have just, you know, they could have done their work and tried to come up with a better reason to explain it. Now, this is Joe Minosky. And the biggest thing I've always been angry about Joe Minoski's writing and disliked about his writing is the fact that he doesn't give a crap about that sort of thing. He doesn't care about continuity at all, and he doesn't care about tech or trying to make it logical. The most infamous example being the one way back in, uh, I believe it, no, it's not Renaissance Man. It's the episode with Leonardo da Vinci, the program being going down to the the, the, the planet, Joe in that episode said, who cares how he gets down there? Make up a tech answer and then get to it. It was everyone else in the writing staff that said, no, we have to have a reason for it. We have to come up with an explanation for it. That right there says all you need to know about Joe approach to this kind of thing. So it is thus logical that in this episode he would just write tech in the script. Now I mentioned I tried to look this up, and I didn't finish that sentence. What I meant by that is I tried to figure out when that process started. Because I have heard rumors, although never substantiated, that once upon a time when a writer would write tech, it would be for an entire section of a script. In other words, the the basic premise would be written, and then the writer would basically write in the column, what I need here is something to explain why the Enterprise can't push the asteroid. And then there would be a big tech there, and they would hand it off to the technical advisor, who would then say, oh, okay, well, just do this and this and this, and he would come up with an actual scientific reason for it, which he would then write in. Now, again, that's rumor. I was never able to substantiate that. But somewhere along the line, it became technobabble, where it was they just write tech into the script as shorthand for nonsense. It's effectively magic at that point, because it just does whatever it needs to. And this would reach egregious levels in later Enterprise and Voyager. That's not true. Middle Voyager, later Enterprise, where sometimes it would be tech. Oh, God, something's wrong. What's wrong? Tech. Well, how are we going to fix it? Tech. Technobabble problem, technobabble solution. Now, you might think this is a weird time to talk about this, but again, this episode does that, as I've already pointed out. And, well, that's this era of Star Trek, isn't it? Because as much as I praise season five, and I do, uh, at least by memory, because I'm obviously only two episodes in right now, this is the beginning of that kind of... Well, that kind of problem when it comes to the writing. That these people have pretty much... uh, (laughs) these <laughs> people have pretty much reached a point where they have started to slide into some mentalities that later on will lead to some bad television, to the season seven problem, right? And so I just kind of wanted to marcate, you know, demarcate the beginning of this. Now... Uh... I'm looking at my notes here. Gosh, I, I actually have very few notes here, as I mentioned. I don't have much to say about the episode proper, because it's a good episode in its execution. It's just, I have certain issues with it. Um, I do like the choice of Gilgamesh. I like the idea of using Gilgamesh as the, you know, the, the thing that he, they decide to use, as the story that Picard tells him. It's funny that Patrick Stewart ends up saying, I'm not a good storyteller. Eh, anyways... But he tells the tale of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, in a very abbreviated format, of course. And it's funny, I almost wish he had said it in a more truncated format than he does. I don't mean literally making it shorter, I mean taking out words. Gilgamesh and Enkidu, at arms. Gilgamesh and Enkidu, in arms, brethren. Gilgamesh and Enkidu... Charge forth into combat, you know charge forth to uh, i don't know the place um, it, it, being able to tell the story basically in a similar manner as to the metaphors that they use to help make it more understandable to the dying captain. I suppose that's not really the point what i want to what I, what I want to know I know this is a weird way to bring this up how much support did he have from his government to do this? What we're seeing, what we know, is that one captain really firmly believed in increasing ties of communication between their two peoples. He believed it so firmly he was willing to risk his life and Picard's in order to accomplish this. And he, he told his officers and his crew, don't interfere under any circumstances to the point where they allowed him to die in order to accomplish this. I bring this up because, if you'll notice, he also had an argument with his first officer, or whatever, during the intro part of the episode, which, again, brings me back to my point. How much support do you think he had to do this officially? Was this a mission he was given, or a mission he presumed? Was this one man or the, on the behalf of the whole network? Or are they more factionalized? often in Star Trek we think of the Romulan as being one power, and for obvious reasons, but it's one of the reasons why I try and fail to always say the Romulan Star Empire, to refer to the nation, not the people. Is this the entire nation of the children of whatever? Or is this just one person? Fascinating thoughts. I really wish we knew more about this. Unfortunately, we'll never see these guys again. But anyways. So... um, I don't know what this means. I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes here. I want to give special praise as well to the Beast graphics. They do a good job of making it look uh, intangible enough to basically avoid how relatively cheap it actually is Look, Have you ever seen photos of the actual suit? It's like, yeah. But they do a good job of showcasing it in a way that hides that, which is good, which is intelligent. It's smart television. You You don't always have tons of money to throw at something to make the effects look amazing, so doing this kind of movement in order to try and make it look intangible was very smart, I think. I also like how the you know the arms open, the army closed, was a good way to get across the kind of strategy he wanted to tell. Just another metaphor thing I want to bring up there. So the ship is, of course, more than a match for the Enterprise. I mentioned that briefly earlier. And that's another thing that kind of irritates me a little bit. Because, well, we've already had that problem on TNG. In fact, we had that problem in TOS. It's a very recurring Star Trek problem. But the reason it starts to bother me now is because from now until forever, basically, that's just going to be the norm. Uh, In the rest of Enterprise, excuse me, in the rest of uh, TNG, in, in most of Voyager and in most of Enterprise, whoever they happen to be encountering that week generally are better than them. And that's always kind of irritated me for reasons I don't even feel like I need to reiterate. So I just wanted to mention it in brief and move on. Um, I have no idea what this note means. I wrote down the realization of in and out variance, and I don't know what I'm talking about. I really don't. I'm like trying to run through the episode in my head, trying to understand what, why I wrote that down. The in and out variance? What? <sighs> I don't know. I got nothing. So for now. I'm going to go ahead and chop this off. And I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. And I'll see you next time, guys.